1: You've tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, episode 97, Amazing Stories.
0: All right, welcome back to the podcast, everyone. It's April, and we're back with some more topics. And there's a bunch of stuff actually happening in, in April, and we actually had to picky and choosy. I mean, we didn't get vagrant Queen in there. We didn't get uh, you know there's a couple of shows that that are on the horizon that we weren't even able to fit in. but we've got a bunch of stuff on the horizon that I think you'll enjoy. And today we're starting off with an anthology series and it's kind of gonna gonna become a theme for the month, in fact, a little bit with the interview we have next week. So Amazing Stories was a series from Steven Spielberg, Dave, that I loved as a child and reinventing it has ended up being somewhat of a similar journey that we talked about when Twilight Zone came back.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting you bring that up because the original came out in 1985. The, of course, the Steve, Steven Spielberg series uh, of the same name of, of the one we're going to address tonight. And I was not a youngin in 1985, <laughs> uh, and I'm sure you were. And You know, one of the things we'll talk about with the two episodes we're going to cover tonight is who the target audience really is. Okay. And I think once you establish the fact that you and I currently are not their target audience.
0: I'll concede that point. Yeah.
1: I I think we can better assess these episodes. I've always said you need to judge something for what it is, not what you think it should be yes very good point (laughs) right and I think the problem here is that because Spielberg's name is attached to it because so many people probably you certainly Wayne brought this up when I was talking to him the other day because it was such an important part of their childhood and their growing up the expectations were sky high even for me who watched it but not religiously I mean it wasn't TV wasn't really on my major radar in 1985.
0: Well, the, I think the main thing that I associate with Amazing Stories is that it's a Twilight Zone or a show like that that has stories that have an optimistic feel. They have a not necessarily a happy ending, but they always end with you feeling good about what you just watched. Rather than feeling like, oh, that was a satirical look at society at large, you know, that kind of thing. Black mirror, that sort of thing. So I think in that sense, this reinvention does succeed. I think they just maybe have some bumps along the road storytelling wise, but I guess we'll talk about that.
1: Well, yeah. And if you guys have been listening to the two of us over the past uh, eight years, almost, you know, we generally try to be positive about the shows we're talking about. And there are plenty of good things to say about both episodes. It's just that there are some things that are so glaring that it almost takes the viewer out of
0: all the good feelings that had been built up to that point. I would 100 percent agree. But again, having... Put that in there as our preface and also saying that we're going to stay positive. I actually did enjoy watching them. I didn't regret sitting down and, and looking at these two episodes. I very much uh, had a fun time.
1: Oh, no question. And, and of course, my wife would say, well, wait a minute. Isn't one of your favorite original episodes the one where the guy sketches a tire on the B-25 bomber <laughs> that's trying to land and suddenly yeah. the cartoon? like, well, yeah. And you have a problem with. (laughs) Good point.
0: Shut up. She makes a good argument.
1: (laughs) Exactly. All right. Well, anyway, enough of that. This reboot of the anthology series airs on Apple TV Plus. And one of the things I found interesting, Brian Fuller was expected to write the pilot and act as showrunner, but he stepped down over creative differences. So I don't know if his expectations were similar to mine, but, uh, you know, no worries. Edward Kitsis, who we know from Lost, Once Upon a Time, Birds of Prey, and Adam Horowitz, the longtime writing team, stepped in as EPs and showrunners, and the series is certainly off the ground and and you know off to a flying start. I, I know a lot of people like it. Ten episodes for this first season, and you know, like we said, it's an anthology, so you can
0: jump in at any point. And they're airing them week to week. I think they have dropped a couple at, right at first, but. Uh, they're doing the Hulu method on Apple TV Plus for the most part, where you just drop a few and then dole them out week by week after that.
1: Okay. All right. So we're going to talk about the first episode titled The Seller, which aired March 6th, 2020. And you alluded to this a few minutes ago. Both episodes that we're going to talk about tonight have a much lighter tone than a lot of the shows we ordinarily talk about, and particularly time travel shows because The Seller is a time travel episode. It's got some of the basic time travel elements, but we don't have travelers coming back from a dark future, trying to change things so that mankind (laughs) can have a better future.
0: No, it's really a personal story. And I kind of like that about it because we did talk a little bit about a darker time travel aspect of sci-fi with devs last week. So it's nice to get kind of a more lighthearted love story to use time travel with.
1: Yeah. I mean, so whether it's 12 monkeys, travelers, (laughs) this ain't either of them. But I I love the fact that we've got a time traveler that's got to convince others that, hey, I am a time traveler. Yeah. Uh, We've got that trope of leaving items for a future
0: self. Oh, well, see, now you call that a trope. I call that genius. I love when time travel stories leave things in the past That are to be discovered later in a nonlinear fashion. (laughs) And
1: I do, too. And I I guess I maybe shouldn't have used the word trope, although sometimes tropes can be good. Yeah. Uh, And and then they weave in some thematic ideas about women's rights, free will and choice, climate change. But they don't hammer you over the head with
0: any of them. Thank goodness, because, you know, we alluded to Twilight Zone earlier and. That one didn't exercise restraint in that respect. <laughs> All right. So uh, let's get into the basic storyline, because
1: we've got these two brothers who are demoing a house so that I guess what the older brother its his company and he refurbishes houses to resell them. So they're demoing a fireplace and Sam finds the small time capsule, opens it up finds a photo of a bride that's clearly from around the turn of the century it appears we we do get a definitive year and date uh, later in the episode but he's mesmerized by this young woman suddenly a storm kicks up warning sirens sound and the brothers have to like secure as much of their equipment and the house as they can Sam runs down to the basement to reset the breaker. And then, you know, we see kind of all this crazy stuff. And, you know, we'll we'll talk about the time travel device. I'm making air quotes when I say that in a few (laughs) minutes. But, you know, this is when the story gets going. We immediately notice that things aren't exactly the same as when everything started going haywire. And, and, you know, we've seen enough of these type of stories that we kind of know what's going on.
0: Well, you know what it reminds me of is Peggy Sue got married. That's kind of like the formula we're going with. Ah, oh,
1: I forgot about that.
0: Yeah. Uh, it reminds me a lot about that, not only from the time periods, although it, this one goes farther back than that, but it has that love story element that also seems to be unexplained as to how it actually occurred. And, and also I want to mention before you get too far in, because I think a big draw for Amazing Stories in general, but this episode in particular is the actor playing Sam Taylor, which is Dylan O'Brien, right, <laughs> who plays Stiles Stilinski on Teen Wolf. So I think that probably brought in maybe that target audience that you were talking about. That's not us.
1: <laughs> well, and, and that could be because they do bring in another actor that we're intimately <laughs> familiar with because he hears a young woman singing Mm -hmm. and playing the piano he follows the voice and it's clearly an old-timey song or again you know from maybe the 1920s I mean I've mentioned it before we find out that he's in 1919 in the throes of the prohibition era and he meets this girl played by Victoria Pedretti who we know from Haunting of Hill House exactly played (laughs) Nell right and you know it's a great I mean
0: it's a fair to call it a meet cute i think it is and and yeah i mean she's got a shotgun pointed at him. i also want to mention that you get to see uh her again victoria in haunting of hill house 2 she plays a completely different character so they're doing like a american horror story type of <laughs> recasting there but yeah i think that is very much a meet cute these guys have chemistry right off the bat no question yeah. Now I mentioned the time travel
1: device and we've got that barometer that becomes integral to the story. We got the weird weather and the barometer is is of course what ends up, you know, I guess letting him know when the weirdest of the weather is going to, you know, be there. But the the thing I love is that she recognizes the concept of a time traveler right away, even though she doesn't believe him she understands what a time traveler is and you know for 1919 i'm not sure how many time travel stories have been written to that point i'm HGLs, sure there's some you know yeah you're right i think that was popular back then okay and, and that's a good point but she doesn't believe him even after he shows her the picture of her which she says is impossible because she's never had her photo taken which okay now things are getting interesting and and but you know through the course of events Again, Sam's had enough experience watching sci-fi time travel (laughs) shows that he thinks things out logically. All right. Uh, The weather seemed to have something to do with it. So he's trying to learn about the weather situation and tracks down this guy that's, I guess, more or less as much of an expert as he's going to find in in this time period. But uh, he ends up trading labor, you know, working on the guy's barn in return for his barometer, which he figures he's going to need if he's going to return to his time, which I guess is 2020. I don't know if that's ever actually explained. I guess it doesn't matter.
0: No, but it's interesting that I wonder if he recognizes the barometer as the same one that ends up there in the future, because, of course, when he comes back to 1919, there is no barometer there. So the fact that it's there in the future means he put it there. And I love that this is the first, but the most subtle of the things that he himself plants for his future self to find or his past self from his point of view. (laughs) Right. Now, you know, in the short time that he's gotten to
1: know Evelyn, both he and the viewer recognize that this is a woman slightly ahead of her time. You know, she is somebody that's fiercely independent, yet is being forced by her parents to marry somebody that she doesn't love because it's financially advantageous for the family. But when he comes back to find her packing because she plans to run away from, from her dilemma, he says, well, this is what I've learned. Why don't we travel to the future together? You'll be free to make your own choices there. And I love how that whole idea of free will and free choice comes back at the end. Yeah. We'll we'll save that, you know, one, as one of the things that he realizes once we get to, you know, the resolution of the story.
0: Well, I also like that his visions of the future that he's able to share with her almost acts as a way of courting her, a way of wooing her to fall in love with him, even though the initial draw is the future itself, not him.
1: Right, right. Now, we get the scene where she's having her photograph taken, and of course, it is the photograph that, that Sam already has a copy of. We hear the storm outside, as do both of them. She runs out of the house, tree-lined lane, rain's pouring down, throws off her veil. Okay.
0: <laughs> but, but it's just, it just works, you know? Yeah, and that's a romantic comedy style of trope, but... It needed to be there with this one, because, of course, the barometric pressure is integral to the time travel. So we'll forgive them a little bit of <laughs> weather heightening of the drama.
1: Right. And like any good story, it's got its ups and downs. We think, all right, they're going to get to go to the future together. Oh, Not so fast. Her fiance and his goons come down, take her away, beat Sam up. Pressure drops. And then he finds himself back in 2019.
0: Right. It's kind of tricky too, because they can't control necessarily when the weather is going to happen. But because this storm is happening over a course of a week, I think they said, there are different surges that he's able to use. Sometimes it's a little convenient where they're able to use it multiple times in a row. But I do like that it kind of makes it a little bit more urgent that they have to time it so specifically.
1: Yeah. Now we've mentioned Sam and Evelyn and this love story across time. And again, we've seen this before, but I think they've done it well here in 42 minutes. They cover a lot of ground and the writing's pretty solid. The acting's pretty solid. I think the dialogue works. We get that scene where they actually first meet when her mother is appalled that she's listening to. I guess this is the early jazz Ragtime, 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 yeah. right? And mother wants to confiscate her records, but he comes in, uh, those are mine. I was a friend of your son, and, and she, Evelyn picks up on it. And they concoct this lie about Sam having been in medical school with her brother. And you think, uh, is that going to come back to haunt them? But it really doesn't. No, <laughs> and that's okay. Right. And Evelyn now believes Sam because of, you know, different elements, including the photograph. And and they take that walk. The future, what's it really like? I just
0: love the fact that she's so open once she believes him. Right. It doesn't hold her back. Like she actually uses it to feed her own dreams of freedom.
1: Right. And of course, at this era of Prohibition, which has only been in place, I guess, about a year. I think Prohibition came into effect in 1918. And she wants to go to this speakeasy. And of course, there's a connection there. They they get there, but they don't know the password. I know you love this aspect because you already alluded to it <laughs> that, oh, wait, I wonder if the word cabbage written
0: on that matchbook is the password. And of course it is. Well, it's the <laughs> only other thing in that capsule besides the wedding photo. So it seemed to be awfully convenient until you realized who put it there.
1: <laughs> exactly. And I think this is the point in the story where we make that connection a hundred percent. At this point, we know yeah. he's left these for his uh, future self. And once inside the speakeasy, he spots the bowl that's got the matchbooks. He grabs one cause he knows he's going to need it later. And <laughs> It's just really wonderful. And you know, the other thing that really struck me about the clientele of the speakeasy was that it was multiracial now maybe that's really the way it was then Oh yeah yeah definitely okay I guess I was surprised about that I thought you know maybe it it still would have been segregated but uh, I guess we all break the
0: law together so (laughs) exactly that that actually probably was a positive aspect of the underground nature of those speakeasies
1: well, you know, Sam is traveling back and forth in time. He gets back to 2019. His brother is really worried. And, and again, this is one of those concepts that's come up in stories. Sam feels like he's been gone a certain amount of time, but for his brother, it you know may not be the same amount of time. And of course, now his brother is faced with Sam telling him, yeah, I've been in 1919. I need to go back because there's this girl why isn't anything working? Oh, dude, what did you do to the basement? You changed things. Well, we got to turn it back, which, <laughs> again, I mentioned how open Evelyn is and how I like that. And obviously, for narrative purposes, his brother kind of has to go along with it, although I guess they could have, you know, duked it out and he knocked his brother out and then t- started well, I also.
0: I feel like Jake actually feels like his brother is kind of aimless and hasn't settled in. So I think they did set that up pretty nicely in the opening scenes where he's telling Sam to, you know, he doesn't have to just work along with him. He needs something in his life. So I think that's why I think Jake is a little bit more accommodating than he might be otherwise.
1: Yeah. And I really like how things play out. I mean, he gets back to 1919. He finds Evelyn takes her to the basement because of course that's where the barometer is that's where the the hot spot of the weird weather seems to be but the basement's flooded he gets trapped by a fallen beam you know she is unable to free him and he tells her what he saw about her in the future but realizes that it's not with him and, you know, that, that's an interesting thing as well, because I almost feel like I'm in uh, dark again, where these fixed points in time that he seems to be going back and forth between 1919, 2019, and then, uh, of course, uh, what is it, 2034. So despite all that, you know, he, he wants her to save herself. She ends up in 2019. And now Jake kind of has to believe what Sam's been telling, because he saw the photograph. Yeah, he knows who this is. (laughs) Right, right. And Jake tells her how much Sam loved her, and then out of the blue, and and okay, so maybe this is a a storytelling flaw. You know, these are the original walls. Next thing you know, he finds two letters hidden inside the wall, One, (laughs) one for Jake, one for Evelyn. And it turns out that jake survived the floodwaters he he was freed and and his letter to her recounts how he realized each was where they belonged and this is i i love this assessment he had too many choices
0: in the future and she had too few in the past i love that that actually is pretty good i had forgotten about that piece but thematically that works really well right and then
1: (laughs) the other thing and you know i'm a sports card collector uh jake's letter to his brother says time to build your own house And I don't know, unless you're a hardcore collector, you probably don't understand the T206 Honus Wagner card. I've definitely heard of the Honus Wagner card. (laughs) Well, in five condition, which is five out of 10, it last sold for 3.12 million. Yep. I think Jake is going to be sitting pretty. (laughs) His is perfect. So we're probably talking literally, I'm seriously like 50 to a hundred million dollars for that card. Of course, he'll have trouble proving its uh, authenticity, (laughs) but uh, anyway, enough about that. But, you know, the story doesn't end there and and it could end there, you know, but we get that look in 2034 where she's lived out her life in the future. And this sort of reminds me of, of Doctor Who blink when Sally Sparrow's friend gets sent back to 1922 and she ends up having to live out her life in 1922 and that's what happens with Evelyn here. And looks like she becomes a star and, and she's got a singing career. She goes upstairs and we see her singing to her son, Sam, on his fifth birthday. And of course, you know, we're not sure what to think at this point. Well, did Sam somehow, but it
0: doesn't appear that way. Um, it's not his son, right? Because. We well, don't- b- the way it runs, because that scene takes place earlier in the episode. I think Sam, as he's passing through and trying to get back to 1919 again to save her and make sure she gets to 1919, I think maybe he believes that the two of them made it back and that the scene he's seeing unfold perhaps is her with their son, Sam Jr. And his older self just isn't there at that particular moment. But I do like that he chooses to not intrude and run back down to the basement to, to head back to the past again. But I think by the end of the episode, it almost seems like when we see that same scene replayed, Evelyn kind of hears the commotion and realizes exactly what it was, that that was Sam for just a brief moment. She got a little visit from him and uh that's all she got because, of course, he lived out his life in the past.
1: See, now you say you like that. I'm like,
0: dude, what the hell are you doing? He should have stayed. <laughs> yes.
1: I mean, at least confront her and i don't mean in a confrontational manner but but let yourself be known now granted i think what you're thinking is all right he figures she's got a husband she's made a life i don't want to screw things up and and there's certainly something to be said for that but maybe the way they did it was better
0: yeah and and i really like this one of the two that we saw this one i think was consistently good from start to finish but it just had some weird ways to enforce the time travel rules and and the way they travel through time was a little bit convenient for me but it was consistently better whereas the second episode that we're about to talk about was really good up front and then sabotaged itself by the end so <laughs> Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.
1: Well, I, I, the last thing I want to say I think we both need to ask ourselves how would our 14 year old selves dealt with these time travel rules and things. I think we would have been fine.
0: Yes. I I think that's a fair point. We definitely would have loved this without reservation. Yes. If it had aired in 1985.
1: (laughs) Right. All right. Well, episode two is titled the heat and that aired a week later, March 13th, 2020. And we've got a basic ghost story here and you know, we don't get enough ghost stories. I think for uh, some of the genre TV that we watch. I mean, there are a few here and there, But it opens with two young female track athletes, Tuca and Sterling. And for me, one of the strengths of this episode, not only the characters, and I say that even though I think the acting was just okay. Oh. It wasn't bad, but I I think- Well, I think the
0: the actors playing Tuca nailed it. But yeah, I think maybe the actors playing Sterling. But I kind of liked the way her- performance was a little bit more amateurish because it made her feel more realistic to me.
1: Uh, okay. And I, I guess what I was going to say also, though, just on screen, their on-screen presence, in addition to their male friend, I forget his name, when the three of them are together, and there are only a couple times they are, there's just something about the chemistry among all of them that, that really nails it. But the other thing is that we aren't really made privy to these kinds of urban settings in our genre television.
0: No, not at all. And I think they did a spot on job of portraying exactly the way it would feel, not only from the standpoint of how their daily lives unfold, but also just when they're up on the roof, looking down at the field and seeing people who have a little bit more privilege than they do. It's not something, just like we said with the opening of this podcast, it doesn't preach at you about socioeconomic status differences in the city, but it really kind of brings it home and makes it feel like you're in their shoes experiencing exactly what they are experiencing. Right. And
1: that opening scene, when they are up on that rooftop looking down, they're talking about their dreams and goals. And we establish right away that they hope to achieve something through competitive running, which is for them being in high school college education and it becomes immediately apparent that this is not a pipe dream that that Tuca is really good and Sterling probably really good on her own but it's just that you know her best friend is phenomenal but then right after they tell us all about their goals dreams and hopes they make plan to head to a street race that evening and when it's readily apparent that Sterling's going to have to lie to get out of the house. We we kind of get a sense of foreboding here that something's going to happen.
0: Yeah, definitely. Especially since they build it into not only the opening but later in the episode too where they're running amongst traffic. Did you notice that? Like they, I did. They yes. did it several times to make us think, wait, they're being awfully reckless there, but things are fine for a good number of times that they that they do that. It's kind of like just the invulnerability of youth is what you're thinking they're trying to show us at first. But then, of course, it becomes a bit of foreshadowing.
1: Right. And and again, I think it's done well, as you said, where they nearly get hit by the oncoming car. And then once they're at this spectacle where the car's cutting donuts and you keep waiting for the car to lose control and hit one of them. And of course, that's not what happens. But. After a short time, Sterling just realizes, no, I need to get home. I'm in training. And Tuca, I guess we're supposed to get the feeling that she's one of those athletes that's so good. Not that she doesn't work hard, but that she doesn't have to do everything the way somebody like Sterling. And she starts teasing her. And that sets up you know, the incident that really is the, the basis of the story.
0: And it does introduce us, to, I think the guy you mentioned, his name is Lee, who is there. And you get the sense that Tuca is almost trying to see Lee and Sterling together, maybe not push them together, but she automatically thinks that they are a couple in the making, which does come into play later in the in the episode. And I like the fact that basically it looks like these two actresses are actually runners, perhaps in real life. That's number one. And number two, Tuca does seem to think that she needs to push Sterling, and so she wants to make her better, and then yet she pulls something like this, I think is one of those short-sighted things friends do to each other.
1: Right, and and of course what happens is that uh, Tuca realizes that maybe she shouldn't have been trying to bully her into staying, goes after her, but uh, Sterling's got her pride and she won't turn around. Next thing you know, Tuca gets hit by an oncoming car. And of course is killed. Then that is the impetus for the ghost story aspect of this episode. Now, you know, we've been talking about Tuka and Sterling. Tuka short for Petrushka, which I found fascinating because, you know, that's the Russian folk tale where the puppet comes to life and I'm
0: not exactly sure if we're supposed to read anything into that or not, you know. Well, except for the fact that how the heck did she get that name to begin with? I could see why she wanted to get a nickname in there. <laughs> right, right. But it quickly becomes apparent
1: just, you know, in the other episode where, oh, he's in a different time. Well, Tuka's wearing the same clothes, but she's waking up on a different street. Next thing you know, she's following people into a church. And again, it only takes us seconds to realize, oh. This is her funeral. And we get that classic ghost story element where no one can see her or hear her. And people start walking straight through her. (laughs) Yes, and and watching her react. And again, I like the fact that it doesn't take her all that long. Now, granted, she does walk up to the uh, coffin at one point and and see herself inside. But this is one of those things I, I keep waiting for the writer to bring something new to the table. And I think in retrospect, just like the first episode, the fact that the writer doesn't, that's okay. Uh,
0: Again, this is geared towards 14 and 15 year olds. And it follows a pattern that feels comfortable. I guess you could say, (laughs) yes, exactly. But then once she goes to the scene of the accident, sees the
1: memorial left by her friends, that recognition why am I still here? Shouldn't I have gone somewhere better? Wasn't I a good person? Shouldn't I be in heaven? Then she says, no one can see me. No one can hear me. And I love that within the context of her life. And I'm certainly not going to pretend I know what it's like to live in an urban setting. Because, of course, I have zero idea other than what I see on TV and what maybe I've I've read I saw this as a metaphor for how she sees her life and those like her that I, I don't count almost. And and now she feels like not only was she stuck in this neighborhood and, and granted running was going to be her way out, but
0: even death wasn't a way out. Exactly. Yeah. I like that a lot. And there's a later speech as well, where she almost is talking directly to the audience. They have her looking at the camera for part of her speech. And I think that was very effective in communicating that exact metaphorical situation that we find her in. Yeah. Now
1: she runs into DJ, the kid carrying the skateboard. And I think immediately we remember towards the beginning of the episode, that memorial that we, we really didn't pay a whole lot of attention to it, but... Oh, I'll bet that's his memorial because, of course, they can see each other and hear each other. So we're thinking, well, he must be dead as well, which, of course, he is. He's been dead a year. So they're in limbo, some sort of afterlife. Is this purgatory? We don't know. But he kind of lays out what he's learned, that he saw his 100-year-old neighbor die, and after only two days, She found her dog a home and then poof, she disappears. So he's like, okay, I got to do some good deeds and that's how I get out of here. But it doesn't work. So what does that
0: mean? Is he really a bad guy? I mean, he certainly doesn't seem like it. Well, I kind of bought into this right away where because it's following predictable patterns, you kind of get that impression that, okay, DJ's going to have to help Tuca. And then once he does that, his job will be done. And then Tuca has her own investigation. And even that is a little bit clouded at first because you think, oh, maybe she's supposed to find out who killed her, bring him to justice, because that's certainly what Sterling wants to do at first. But of course, there's much more to it than that.
1: Right, and we wonder whether it's the altruism factor that the 100-year-old woman, she just wants to find a home for her dog. DJ, he's doing things so that he gets a good result. And maybe it's not perceived to be the same. And as you said, you can't do it on purpose. (laughs) Exactly. Now, a lot of the episode focuses on Sterling feeling responsible for Tuca's death. But as you said, it's also part of finding the killer. And one of the narrative aspects of this episode that for me was really cringeworthy was when Tuca realizes well, nobody can see me. Nobody can hear me, but I can see and hear them. I just need to, you know, scope out the hood and and find out. Well, who actually was driving the car? Uh, so she goes to the basketball court, and immediately those two guys like, <laughs> all right, that's a no, little convenient.
0: <laughs> oh, and and that was some cringeworthy dialogue. I'm sorry, it really well, was. The whole but- criminal element didn't work for me. So I loved the story in general. Once they got to Sterling being able to hear Tuca. Yes. But with all the criminal element, that kind of all fell flat. Yes. And, And the fact that she can only hear her
1: when she's running. Yeah, I love that. Because that was, you know, one of their connections. I mean, granted, they were best friends and it seems like they've been best friends for a long time. But that running connection and then Tuca's determination to make Sterling... Good enough to get under. I think it was fifty-five seconds in the four hundred meters, and that was going to win her that
0: meet and presumably a college scholarship. Right. There was going to be a bunch of scouts at that particular invitational. So, right. Did you love that? Like the nod to Ghostbusters? Which one? Oh, yeah. I ain't afraid of no ghost. <laughs> yeah. Got to fit that in there somewhere, ah, right? You got it. And they <laughs> did
1: it. They really did
0: that well because it it, it just. Popped in and I'm like, oh, that was nice. But I like that there was a slow realization from Sterling because they didn't make her just be like, Duke, is that you? She actually did some internal dialogue to get herself talked into it. Like she wasn't sure at first that she heard what she thought she heard. And then she went to the track by herself to test out her theory. And she felt ridiculous doing it. But it worked.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: And then, you know, I mentioned
1: when we were talking metaphor a few minutes ago, you know, where Tuke even says, I've been every kind of invisible, alive and dead. It tore me up inside. So, I mean, there really is a lot of emotion that surrounds these two young women. And really, that is what drives this story. You know, as you said, the criminal element to it, on the most part, it falls flat. But as Sterling's walking home, SUV pulls up, owner of the car gets out and confronts her. Now, granted, we, we go back to, you know, we didn't talk about the scene when she goes to the chop shop that supposedly has the vehicle and starts smashing it up when they won't tell her the driver's name. And, and of course, like, OK, probably not a good move, but she takes the baseball bat to the knee. And of course, we know her running career is going to take a hit. Now, you talked about the realistic portrayal of a lot of elements in this story and I agree with you and if you're going to set something in a high school we're going to be all over you when you
0: make a mistake okay which one was it
1: <laughs> oh no I think they did a superb job here oh, good, right good, down good. to the the track uniforms just all the nuance uh you know on the track oh no I think they did a spectacular job with that I- I'm just glad that she didn't win the race yeah I mean you take a baseball bat to the knee like that there's no darn way she's getting up and running a sub 55 second 400 <laughs> meter. So I, I don't care how many guts she has. But okay, again, you know, I think you said at the top of the discussion it's a feel good show, and the episodes leave you, you know, more or less with a, uh, a smile on your face. But we get to that final sequence, and they're up on the rooftop, which is their spot, and they can't talk because Sterling can't run.
0: Right. But she can talk to Tuca, and Tuca can listen.
1: Yes. And Sterling's emotional. She's been holding on to the fact that she loves Tuka and never expressed it. And, and this is where I think what you're yep. talking about, where it's starting <laughs> to break down, because where did this come from?
0: Right. Like, it becomes a kind of a divine intervention element, and I don't like that. Once
1: she does, now they can see each other, they lean in, kiss each other and Tuca begins to disappear. Um, yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I did. That wasn't as bad to me as what happened next because Tuca was hit pretty darn hard by that car. And for her to just wake up completely unscathed and say, I'm going to need you to kiss me now. And then everything just kind of is hunky dory after that, where they're running side by side. I don't know. Because it's almost like you've put the stakes so high and then you undid it for everybody except for Tuca. And for Sterling, none of that even happened. Right. And we see
1: Sterling over Tuca's body, lying in the road, pleading with her to be all right.
0: And she's all right. She gets up, they kiss, (laughs) and they walk away. No, sorry. You have to at least be injured. But see, I think what should have happened is that Tuca should have merged with Sterling to help her finish the race, like help heal that problem leg that she had, maybe not even win the race, because I guess the implication is supposed to be that if everything was undone, perhaps Tuca now has the chance to train her up again, but I don't, that's not enough for me. That's not enough for me.
1: Well, (laughs) and then the two of them go and visit DJ shrine and Tuca places, I guess they're supposed to be bronzed sneakers. Yeah. They walk away and then DJ disappears as the hit-and-run car rides by, well, what did he do to disappear? I mean, he didn't really... He helped her. He helped Tuca. Yeah, I guess. Uh, Okay. (laughs) I mean, he explained to her what the rules are, I suppose. And I, I guess we feel like Tuca didn't help Sterling simply to get to the next level of the afterlife. She did it
0: because this is her friend and she loves her friend. So, but that's the problem. See, we can't settle on a particular thing for the ending because the ending is a mess, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's, it's a shame because the story itself was so good. And Tuca's emotional moments and her speeches, especially were just so heart wrenching. Like it actually did bring tears to my eyes. The one where she was looking into the camera. So I just wish they had nailed the, the landing a little bit better.
1: Yeah, because there's so much going for it. I mean, visually, uh, you know, the setting, the again, the chemistry of of
0: all the characters. The cultural depiction in general. I think was something we just don't see enough in a realistic fashion like that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, like you said, you know, maybe in retrospect, go back and rewrite the ending there. (laughs) (laughs) But again, I think because it's amazing stories, they want to end with a hopeful note, and that's what they came up with. So... I think that the story and the premise should get accolades on its own, to be honest. And uh, then we can just forgive the flaws. And I think that's true of the the series in general. I haven't seen any more episodes after this one, the ones that we talked about, but I'm still going to watch it. But it's interesting that we had this as our first topic for April, because it gives April kind of a theme in that the next topic that we're going to go to is Tales from the Loop, Now, this is an interesting show, Dave. We're doing an interview, so it's not going to be a show topic where we'll discuss it in depth, but it's a show that takes place in a small town in Ohio that's built on top of a particle accelerator. And the idea is that strange things happen in this town because of all the discoveries going on under the ground, learning about the secrets of the universe. And so science fiction-y type stuff happens in the town. And there are different stories told from different points of view within the town. So it's not a true anthology series in the fact that the stories are separate, like in this amazing stories that we just talked about. But it's an anthology series within one town with one circumstance, but a variety of sci-fi elements, including time travel, including parallel universes, lots of cool stuff to talk about. So I'm going to be watching the show regardless of whether it's a show topic, but the interview is going to definitely give us some insight into it as well. Well, as long as it's not under the dome, I'll give it a shot. (laughs) Yeah. So the show is called Tales from the Loop, and we're going to be talking to the showrunner, Nathaniel Halpern, who wrote all eight episodes of this series that dropped on April 3rd on Amazon. And we also talked to one of the actors from the show to piggyback along with it, Paul Schneider, who plays George Willard on the show. You may remember him from Parks and Recreation or even Channel Zero. He talked to us about his character and about the show in general as well. So it's a double feature interview next week for Tales from the Loop. So we hope you'll join us for that one. But that's going to be it for this episode of Sci-Fi Fidelity. Keep the discussion going on social media. You can follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US. And we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity.
1: And in the meantime, we'd love it if you could rate and review the podcast wherever you access it. And be sure to send us your suggestions for future topics via social media or an email that can go to sci-fi fidelity at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.